and you know you're nobody if you don't have tapes for sale. So somewhere out there we have some tapes for sale. Shelley has them. If anything in this message struck you as remotely biblical, buy a tape. Now, that's not funny. That guy's not funny. I don't find that funny. It's going to get worse. Let's just all loosen up here for a few minutes and take a deep breath and let's pretend we love one another. I really, uh, I really got her good in this morning's service. So she's got the, she's holding her fingers like this. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful presence, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your presence, which we, which we can actually feel and experience. Thank you for unity in this, in this city. Increase it, Lord Jesus. Give us your manifest presence. We pray, Lord, that you will take everything that is said tonight and use it to draw us closer into an intimate relationship of love with you. Lord, what is just of me, I would ask that it be forgotten very quickly. What is of you, I pray it would go deep, work its way into our minds and our emotions and our wills to where we live differently because we've heard truth. Amen. God is so good. Uh, Last week or two, I've been looking at my shoes thinking, these shoes really need to be polished. These shoes really need a shine. And I haven't had time to do that. And uh, I was looking down at them before church started. I was, really, Joel. And I was thinking, man, these shoes look terrible. And uh, Joel came up. Ed's son, and he had his shoe shine kit with him. And he said, hey, let me do your shoes. So right then and there, he took my shoes and put on the stuff and everything and buffed them all up. And I just, I, I look one, like one of those TV pastors, don't I? <laughs> like just, you know, just close your eyes and imagine hair. It's hard. And a white suit with a big old vest and a watch chain and a Rolex, big old Rolex and, and shiny shoes. I'm as good as any of those guys. What we did this morning, we started a series on a particular kind of prayer. You know, the Bible speaks of several kinds of prayer. We have intercessory prayer. We also talk about spiritual warfare prayer. We have petitionary prayer where you're coming to God on behalf of yourself and and, uh, sometimes on behalf of others and you're asking for things. We have prayers of thanksgiving. We have uh, prayers of worship and praise. All these different forms of prayer. But this next few days, starting today and going on for the next two days, I want to focus in on one particular kind of prayer. And it's gone over the centuries by many different names. Some people would say it's abiding prayer. Others would say it's devotional prayer. If you're from uh, way back, you'd call it contemplative prayer. But the point of this kind of prayer is not to accomplish anything. It's not about coming to get a breakthrough. It's not about coming to see uh, something done in the earth. It's not a prayer about activity. It's not a prayer even about power. It's singular. The purpose of this kind of prayer is nothing more than relationship with your Heavenly Father. It's about abiding. It's about being instead of doing. Now, we all pay lip service to that. We know the cliche, uh, you're human beings, not human doings. That's all well and good, but we don't live that way. We don't live like we're human beings. We live like we're human doings. And so much of our prayer as Christians is caught up in what we should be accomplishing for the Lord. And if you're in leadership in a church, oh, the list of problems... When I was pastoring a fairly large church, I found it very frustrating because we'd come together to be elders together in in, in our church, and it always seemed like the list of problems was longer than the list of blessings. We were praying about so many problems, after a while I started to think, that's all the church is, is a collection of problems hiding inside people. (laughs) can become very discouraging. After a while, you wonder, why am I doing what I'm doing? 
Where's the joy in this? Whenever you start asking yourself, where's the joy in this? The emphasis has moved too much towards doing things away from being something. It's moved towards working for God instead of being with God. We're all subject to this temptation. We live in a performance-driven culture where what you do defines who you are. And frankly, what you do is more important than who you are. As long as he's a good wide receiver, as long as he's catching the passes, as long as he's making the touchdown, it doesn't matter about his life. It doesn't matter what he's doing to those girls. It doesn't matter how he's living or what drugs he's taking because he's performing. It's true. Character is not as important as action. It used to be the other way around. Character was everything and action followed. The church has been highly influenced by the culture in which we live, and, and so we think that way, even of one another. How many times have, have we had the experience of bringing someone into the church who's got an amazing spiritual gift, only to find two years later that their character isn't one-tenth of what their gifting is? And, of course, character is always a thing that gets you into trouble, never gifting. The gifting always stays. It's the character that's lacking. There's a form of prayer which flies in the face of this. There's a form of prayer that says who you are is more important than what you do. Who you are with God is what defines you. Who you are with Him is where your worth comes from. Who you are with Him is where your self-respect comes from. That's where your value lies. And that's the kind of prayer we want to talk about. This morning, we began with the verse in the Old Testament, Be still and know that I am God. Because it's my belief that this kind of abiding prayer, this highly relational, and I say without apology, emotional kind of prayer life, of love, with our Heavenly Father, is bound up with Stillness. This is a terrifying concept. We run from being still. The worst thing that can happen on the radio is dead air. Silence is terrifying. We do everything to avoid silence. I played a video clip, a DVD for you. 1968, a naturalist went out to record one hour of uninterrupted natural sound without a human noise within it. One hour out in the wilderness. Took 15 hours to obtain one hour of uninterrupted natural sound without human-generated noise. That was in 1968. In 2000, He went out to do it again. Took over 2,000 hours. 2,000 hours of taping and waiting to get one hour. From 1968 to 2000, that's what? That's uh, 32 years? From 15 hours of listening to to over 2,000? We're full of noise. We're the noisiest people on earth. I'll tell you this. It's my belief our noise is a place to hide. Our noise is a place to hide. We don't have to think when there's distraction. We don't have to face our fears. We don't have to look at our pains. We don't have to think about our doubts. We don't have to discover what we're really like. We don't have to look inside. And we don't have to spend time with God because we're afraid of what He might say to us because we're afraid of who we are most of the time. Anyone in this room really like yourself? One theologian said, you know, busyness isn't of the devil. Busyness is the devil. 
I say, noise isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Anything that continually provides a place to hide from God, a constant source of distraction, anything but that we would stop, be still, and know that I am God. There's something seriously wrong in that. And yet it's so a part of our life. Today we measure the success of our automobile by how loud the boombox is. We measure the success of our cars by how early in our lives we can be deaf. Go figure. All that to say, the Bible continually calls the children of God to stillness. I've got a list of verses here and we'll make photocopies afterwards for anyone that wants it on stillness the word stillness and we studied the word stillness in the sermon this morning be still and know that I am God here's what we found just by way of uh, review to set up this next bit we're going to look at there are three principal concepts of stillness in the Old Testament the Hebrew word which we translate still has several forms with, interestingly, quite different meanings. Be still and know that I am God. The first meaning for that Hebrew word is exactly what you'd expect. Be still. In other words, stop fidgeting. Stop moving around. Sit still. Now, you've heard that phrase hundreds of times. A long time ago, you heard it from your parents. A short time ago, you used to say it. Now your kids are grown up, now it's the grandchildren, and before you have to say it, they're taken out of your home. Be still. God's a father, and he's saying it to his children. It's a command, be still. So the first meaning of that word still is sit still. Stop moving. The second meaning is interestingly, it's a, it's a different form, and it, is the, it, it would be interpreted this way. And I mean this in all due respect. Shut up. Quit talking. Don't make noise. It comes from the Hebrew root to be dumb. To be struck dumb, unable to speak. Silence yourself. Stop talking. So now we have two things put together in this idea of stillness. Sit still and be quiet. Now, there's a third, and this is where we're going. This is the depth. This is the point. The third meaning for stillness is uh, not physical stillness. It's beyond that. It's beyond even being quiet. My eyes are not proud. I'm not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters that are too wonderful for me because I have stilled and quieted my heart within me, like a well-fed baby lying in its mother's arms. Like a well-fed baby lying in its mother's arms is my soul within me. And that word means, quite literally, let go of the rope. It's the Hebrew word that you would use if you were holding a camel or a horse tight with that rope and you just wanted to take the slack off the rope and let the horse go, you would still the rope. You would let it go and it would drop. The pressure would come off the rope. You would literally let go. It's a stillness of heart. It's what happens when you let go of who you are as a pastor, who you are as a mother, who you are as a father, who you are as a leader, who you are as a wife, who you are as a mother, who you are as an employer, all the doing roles of our life you let go of. You know what remains when you let go of all those roles? The real you. You let go of all those things and you enter into a state of rest. A state of stillness. Like a well-fed child resting in his mother's arms is my soul within me. This is abiding. 
This is being with Him. Not for the sake of getting something done. For the sake of being His child. Not for the sake of accomplishing anything great for Him. No parent holding a six-month-old baby thinks, what have you done for me lately? You know, you're nothing but trouble, sticking something in one end and cleaning up the other end. You know, when are you going to get a job? I, I can't tell you how much it's disappointed me that you haven't got a paper route yet. Your eating habits are atrocious. Your performance as a human being is substandard. In that kind of relationship, nothing like that enters into it. The parent is thrilled just to hold the baby. And the baby is completely at peace and at rest, lying in mother's arms or in father's arms. Could it be? Could it be that our Heavenly Father is actually heavenly and is actually a father? Could it be that he has emotions? Could it be that he feels that way about his children? I, I was... I have no children, but I have two dogs. One is a 17-year-old Yorkshire Terrier on his way out of life, blind in both eyes, no teeth, bumps into the walls and looks for food. The other is a two-year-old Chihuahua called Pete, Mr. Entertainment, we call him. I was sitting in the backyard having my quiet time with the Lord, and Emmett, the little blind, pathetic, useless Yorkie came stumbling across the backyard and I picked him up and I held him in my arms. And I just love to cuddle with this dog because I'm pathetic. I'm one of those 50-some-year-old guys with no kids and now he has a small dog and it's my surrogate child. I admit it, I'm pathetic. So here I am holding this little dog, loving him, affectionate with him, stroking his pathetic little blind face and his tongue hanging out because he has no teeth to hold it in. 17 years old, getting ready to die. And I have all these warm, affectionate feelings towards this dog. And then the thought crosses my mind. He's not a baby, Mark. In people years, he's 120. You're not holding a cuddly little baby. You're holding a crotchety old man. He's cranky and nasty, and he probably hates you. So the thought crosses my mind, why do you keep thinking of him like a baby? He's older than you are, and you're cuckooing this little old man in a, in a wheelchair. And I'm trying to figure this out. And then God speaks to me in this moment. And God says, you feel the way you do about this dog because he is small and he is helpless. Is the light going on for anybody? See, listen to me. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're small and you're helpless. When your heavenly Father looks down at you, you're small and you're helpless. And He's going to see you with those loving, paternal, affectionate feelings till the day you die. You are always going to be small and helpless and in need of His love. You are always going to evoke fatherly feelings in Him. And if you can accept it, you're going to evoke motherly feelings in Him too because that's where it all came from. That's where it all came from. He's so... He's so affectionate. He's, he's affectionate with you. His heart longs to hold you. But you're too busy doing things for Him. For that. This isn't going where it was supposed to go. It's going where it's supposed to go. God. The ones 
here's the irony, here's the devil's worst trick in the whole deal. The people that need this kind of prayer life with God are the people that do the best work for Him. The most needy amongst us are the ones that work the hardest. We're so busy working for Him. We've forgotten how to be with Him. We're so busy doing things for Him, we've forgotten how to be a child. Anybody own this? I'm not proud and my eyes aren't haughty and I don't consider myself with things too wonderful for me. But I've stilled and quieted my emotions and my thoughts like a child who's just finished eating. A friend of mine with her first baby told me one time, and I've told this before, but I just love the illustration. She said, I can always tell when my baby is full. And I said, how's that? And she said, well, he has a fuel, t- he has a fuel gauge. And I, ah, come on. They don't come with fuel gauges. She said, no, he does. She said, when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he wants to eat, he's furious. He's really angry because he doesn't, hasn't gotten what he wants. And she said, when I take him and hold him and begin feeding, his little hands are all balled up like this. His little face is red. And he's shaking and he's squeezing so tight. And he jumps on that. And he starts to feed. And he's feeding and he's feeding and he's feeding. I, this is Texas. I don't know how to do this. So, I don't know. From where I'm coming from, I don't know. But anyway, the little guy, he... It's a buffet. Anyway, he's, uh, he's there, and he's eating as fast as he can, and he's still full of rage when he starts, but he's receiving what he needs, and he's starting to fill up. And she says, as he begins to fill up, his hands start to open. They're not clenched anymore. And slowly, she says, I watch as he's feeding, and his hands, they just get open and open and open. And she says, and then I know when he's full. Because his hands are like this. See, he's let go. He's taken the slack off the rope. He's full. He's satisfied. He's content. He's happy. Well, when was the last time you were full, content, and happy? When was the last time you were able to sit in God's presence and your hands were just wide open? You weren't holding on to anything. You know what you hold on to. You hold on to the same things I hold on to. You hold on to your money concerns. You hold on to your relationships with the kids' problems. You hold on, with the, you hold on to the situation with the boyfriend of your daughter you can't stand. You hold on to whether your husband's going to keep on loving you. You hold on to whether the job is going to continue. You hold on to all these things. And underneath of it all, the worst thing of all, you hold on to this fear that unless you work really hard for God, you're not going to have worth in standing with Him. See, underneath of it all, there's an insecurity even with Him. Can you trust God with your own righteousness? Freedom doesn't come until you can say to the Lord, I'm not making it. If I were you, I wouldn't be happy with me and I would have cut me from the team a long time ago. But I understand that you grade things a little different. You ascribe Jesus' score on the test to me. So I can come into your presence 
and I can rest because I don't have anything else to say. And I don't have anything to justify myself with. I'm just here as a baby. Well, that was a good introduction. We're not going to do the rest of the sermon. I'm just going to tell you a story and then we're going to pray. I want to bring this home. For some reason, this is really important to the Lord tonight that we all get this. So, to those of you who heard me tell this story a couple of years ago, I apologize. But the rest of you are going to hear something wonderful. This is the best illustration I've got for this Father Heart of God thing. Um, Fifteen years ago, Early in my pastorate, um, didn't have any children, still don't have any children. My wife's uh, sister had the first baby in the family, a little boy named Willie. And he, uh, I mean, he's a baby, he's cute. But see, I'm building the church, you got to understand. I don't have any kids I'm building the church. It's just taken off. It's, it's really exciting. We're accomplishing great things. I'm working really hard. It's consuming my life. And I'm happy that way. That's the way I want it. So she shows the baby to us. She's so proud of her baby. And I've got to be honest with you. I look at the baby and I think, yeah, that's a baby. Very, very baby-esque. The hole at each end. The problems. Enjoy your little baby. So I pay it no mind, you see, because to me it's an irrelevance. I got a church to build. I got God's ministry to do. I got problems up to here. What's a baby? It's family, so you act like you appreciate it, but hey, it's a baby. I was a lawyer, okay? So these kind of callous lack of emotions came easy to me. We were bred that way. When you go to law school, they remove your soul. When you're Christian, you get it back. But in the meantime, you're a blood-sucking lawyer. So anyway, time goes by, and I'm doing my thing, and there's this little baby in her life, so what? Well, when Willie's six months, seven months old, he gets a really bad infection. And he's hitting a fever of 104, sustained fever of 104. They think he's good chance he's going to die. So I'm the family Levite with the oil and the professional ministry. So I get the phone call to come and pray for him at the children's hospital. I've never been in the children's hospital before. So I go over there to see the baby. And I've got to be honest with you, I'd never seen a sick baby before. I'd never seen a truly sick baby. So when I go in to see him, and the nurse is holding him, He's not like the last time I saw him. The last time I saw him, he was moving around. He had an agenda the last time I saw him. He doesn't have an agenda now. He's just lying there limp, like everything is just hanging limp. And he's got this red face, and he's running this fever. I mean, he looked like death. So they handed him to me. Pray for him. Do your thing. So I start holding him, pacing down the hallways, going back and forth with this baby in the hospital, praying for this baby. And, and, and I'm doing my best. I anointed him with oil and I prayed in tongues over him and I, I prayed every good healing prayer I knew and I cast things in and out and took authority and fought in the heavenlies. I did everything I knew to do. And this went on every day. I visited Willie every day for about ten days. In the first four or five days, he didn't improve, but then he started to improve. He started to get better. He started to get better. He started to get better. On the 11th or 12th day, about 11 days, I was there in the hospital holding him when the doctor came to say he's being discharged. He's fine. You know, he's got no fever. He's, he's, he'll soon be back to normal. He's eating properly. Everything's cool. So you can take him home, and he says to me, you can give him back to his mother. So I take him. He's been clinging onto my neck. See, because I've been holding him and praying for him 
every day, for a couple, several hours a day, for ten days. So I, pull, I go to pull him off of me to give him back to his mother, and he won't go. He's holding on to me, and he won't go back to his mother. He wants to stay with me. From that moment, that child owned me. I belong to him. He is mine, and I am him. And the world will not interfere with this relationship. It broke my heart and his to go back to his mother. Well, you know, she'd been through a lot. Stressful for a mother. Jesus made it clear to me she needed some help. So with a big, loving, Christ-like heart, I called her and I said, Helen, you've been through so much. This has been so stressful for you. You know, you need a day off every week. You need to go shopping with the girls. And I think Monday is a good day for you to go shopping with the girls. And it, because I'm just so wonderful, I'll come over and babysit Willie every Monday. I'll be there at 9. Or 8 if you like, or 7. You name the time. Well, see, she clearly knew what was going on. She saw through my very transparent motives. She knew I just really, really, Wanted to be with that kid. So she said, sure, Mark, you come over on Mondays. You babysit. Because she's selfish too. So it's, it's a win-win. <laughs> it's a win-win. God is a win-win God. So I start going over there on Mondays. I mean, it was humiliating. I find myself doing things to get a laugh out of this kid that I would never do <laughs> in public. just cast one of those out just the other day. <laughs> Kids, check this out. You're going to look. Wait. Here we go. Check this out. God loves you and has a plan for your life. So anyway, so anyway, I'm just, and I'm tired because Sunday is two services in the morning and one at night, and it's hard work, and I've worked all day long, and I'm dog-tired, but this is my day off, and I am going to spend every minute with that kid. So for five years, I spent every Monday that I was in the city, every Monday with that boy. And I would uh, follow him around the house when he started to toddle, and he couldn't speak, but he would, he would point at things and go, ugh, ugh. Uh, and I would go get it. That's easy when it's a picture on the wall. When it's a pillow, I move couches. Drag, I drug furniture to him. Literally. I mean, I would do anything to get a rise or a smile out of this little kid. He would wander around the house pointing at things. And I would run around behind him and getting him. Changing his diapers, getting his food ready, making dumb games like we're hiding from lions underneath cushions and stuff and the hunters are coming to get us and all sorts of things. And just silly stuff. Taking care of his needs. Getting things out of his way so he won't trip and fall and get hurt. Changing the circumstances of his world in ways that he has no idea what I'm doing to make sure nothing bad happens to him all day. But here's the bottom line. This is the point. In that whole time that I'm with him, from 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning, I'm waiting for one particular time of day to come. The whole deal for me is waiting for one time of day to come. It happens after lunch. It happens at about 2 to 2.30 in the afternoon. What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for him to get tired. See, because I found out the hard way, at 9 o'clock in the morning, he doesn't want to cuddle. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he has lions to kill and games to play and energy. I'm waiting for 2.30 in the afternoon when he gets tired. Because when he gets tired, he comes to me like this. He toddles up to me and he comes to me and he reaches his hands out and he goes, because uh, uh, he's not talking yet. And I know what he wants. He wants to be picked up and he wants to be held. And people, that's my payoff 
because I get to have Him in my arms. I get to hold Him. I get to feel Him. I get to stroke His head. I get to love Him. There's no greater joy in my life than those times spent holding Him in the afternoon. One time, sitting in the living room on a rocking chair, and he comes toddling across the rug, and he reaches out his hands and goes, ah, ah, and I pick him up. And I put one foot here, and one foot here, and I'm sitting down, and my hands are on his waist, and he's standing on my knees, and he's eye to eye with me. And he's looking into my eyes, and I'm looking into his eyes. And we're about this far apart. And he takes his finger. And he holds his finger up in front of his face, halfway between him and me. And he examines his little, little tiny little finger like this. And then he takes it and shoves it up my nose. <laughs> he shoves it all the way up to the knuckle. And he holds it there inside my nose. And he's gazing at me. And I'm looking into his eyes and he's looking at me with his finger up my nose. And quite a few seconds goes by and then he pulls it out and he holds it up and he rolls it and he looks at it and then he shoves it up again. And there I am looking into his face with his finger up my nose. And this is a God thing. All of a sudden, this surge of love. See, before this moment, I thought I loved Him. But in this moment, this surge of love just came up inside of me like, like, like a geyser. And I was completely overcome with affection and love for this little guy. And in that moment, looking at each other, with his finger up my nose, being overcome with love, I spoke out loud into an empty room something I had not thought about. It just came out of my mouth. And I said, Oh God, are you jealous? Because you can't have me like this. Did you get it? For just a minute, I figured it out. God showed me how He feels. And I thought of a Bible verse right then and there, and it went like this. If you, being an evil uncle, know how to love your nephew, how much more does your Heavenly Father love you? All I experienced was uncle love. Just a good dose of uncle love. I can't imagine how you feel about your children because I've never experienced it. I can't imagine how God feels about us. But that's how He feels about us. You know, I'm not knocking intercessory prayer. I'm not knocking petitionary prayer. I'm not knocking spiritual warfare. I'm not knocking any of those forms of prayer. I do them. It's part of my thank you to God. There isn't anything that you can do for God that he can't do better himself. So why does he involve us? Because he likes to be with his children. He likes to do things with his kids. The only thing that you can do for God that he can't do for himself is crawl up into his lap. He can't make you do that. 
He has to wait till you're tired. So he runs around all morning, moving things in your life to protect you, to minimize your bad choices, taking care of your needs and entertaining you to get a smile out of you, sending a sunset. Things of beauty. But he's waiting. He's just waiting. He's waiting for you to get tired. Pick me up. Pick me up. I want to be held. And the devil at that point says, Oh, oh, how selfish you are to take up God's time so you can feel loved. The biggest lie of all time, you're not taking up God's time so you can get loved. You're giving God the greatest gift you can give Him. You're giving Him the chance to hold you and to love you, to pour out His affection on you. Only you can choose that. When you're tired. When you're ready. Every form of prayer and every good thing we do for God is supposed to come from that place. It's all supposed to pour out from that experience. The fountain wells up inside and it spills over the top of the glass and you can't help watering the plants because the glass is overflowing. We minister out of the overflow. The smartest thing we can do as Christians is to let Him love us and spend time with Him and just receive. And then when you're full, let Him pour it out wherever He wants. It's just a life of response just the way Jesus lived. That's a abiding prayer life. It's a devotional prayer life. It's a prayer life of contemplation on His love and His goodness for you. Receive and then give. Receive and then give. If you give without receiving, you don't have anything to give. I think what the Lord wants to do in closing is I think He wants to have a ministry time where we receive. Where we just open our hearts and say, I'm tired of running around. I'm tired of working for you. I want to be with you. Paul speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. The thing that the Holy Spirit does. What is this thing that the Holy Spirit does? He witnesses the core of your being that you're God's well-loved child. And from that experience, you cry out, Abba. You cry out, Daddy. In an experience of intimate love. That's where the power comes from. That's where the good works come from. That's where every gift, every ministry comes from. Anything other than that is the flesh. Anything less than that is self-effort. So I think He wants to touch us. I think the Holy Spirit wants to do some ministry. Okay? So let's ask this question. Would you close your eyes? Holy Spirit, we, we sense Your presence here. Your love is already active in the room. But I would ask You, Lord, no demand, just ask You. 
Would you touch our hearts? Would you show us our need? Would you just show us if this is what I need from the Father, if this is what I need more of, if I've been working, if I've been seeing your life as things to do, battles to fight, and struggles. And I've missed just being with you. And and you wanna you wanna restore that. You wanna begin to restore that relationship. You wanna heal that. You you want to increase it. Holy Spirit, would you say so now if that's true for us? Would you just affirm that in our hearts? the answer to that question is yes, and you'd like to receive prayer about this, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to deepen and further this work, once you just come forward now and come on up here and we'll pray for you. The Lord's spoken that to your heart. You sense that's a genuine need within and desire that He's awoke, awoken that within you. Just come on up and we'll pray for you. just waiting because uh, I know that there's a whole bunch more people that feel this but you don't want to be seen to feel this and yet and yet there's real need and genuine desire in your heart for God to to love you this way and so the longer we wait the more people will admit it It's just the effect of silence. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. Genuinely not trying to manipulate you for the sake of a big crowd at the front. I just hate doing a service like this knowing that there's people that really desire a touch from God with His Father heart. And for some reason they don't get it. We miss an opportunity. I just hate that. I just want everybody who feels like this is my need, I want everyone to receive something wonderful from the Father heart of God. And so I'm just stalling. elders, hey leaders. I know some of you want to receive prayer. I know it. But you're from a tradition where you can't. Because it would appear to be weakness. Bad tradition. Falsehood. How about you just throw it overboard and come and receive? Holy Spirit, we invite you to touch spirit of adoption 
spirit of adoption. You were born from above, not of a not of a husband's will, not of a human decision. You were born from above. You were born of God. Oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished on you that you're called His child. And that's who you are. And He calls you His child. And that's who you are. Holy Spirit, we invite you to minister to your children. Holy Spirit, we invite you to witness. To witness deep within, Lord. At the core of our being, that we're your children. You're not too old to receive this. The Lord says it's not about age. And the Lord also says you haven't been damaged so deeply that you can't receive this. There's nothing that's been done to you that His love can't penetrate through and touch your heart and bring that kind of innocence, childlike simplicity that you so highly value and that you desire so much. So just receive. Just receive. Pastors and elders, why don't you come and lay hands on these people? Let's pray for them. Anybody else that wants prayer, just just if you want to come now, come now. Fill him, Lord. Fill him, Lord.